0: to the Talking Sportsbooks podcast. And coming up this month, we're going back to the 1970s as we relive everything the decade had to offer in terms of football. In music, we had uh, all the variants of rock, beginning with hard rock, glam rock, prog rock and punk rock. And on the telly, you had the likely lads. Before that, though, just a reminder, some of the most recent editions of the programme still available on the website and all of the streaming providers including the Sunday Times bestselling author Brian Dugan talking about his book The Super Fight when marvellous Marvin Hagler met Sugar Ray Leonard. It's the story of their lives up until that point. And, of course, it's been made all the more poignant due to the passing of Marvin Hagler just a few weeks ago, one of the real all-time legends of the sport. It's well worth a listen. It's a great book and a great story. And also, if you didn't see the most recent programme, Steve Hunt joined me as we talked about his book, I'm With The Cosmos, which looked back at the time that he left Aston Villa to team up with a few guys, Pelé, Beckenbach, Chinalia and Carlos Alberto New York Cosmos who were and probably still are football's only ever equivalent of a rock and roll band on tour and that leads us nicely into today David Tocciello has written a really good new book it's called All Crazy Now which perfectly encapsulates what football music tv and fan culture really was about In the 1970s He joined me recently to talk about the book And to relive As Rob Reiner A.K.A. Marty Bergie, Once put it The sights, the sounds The smells of the decade He got that But he got more A lot more And enough of my yakking What do you say? Let's boogie Let's start with the great debate of the early part of the 1970s, the football method. Now, there was the Leeds method, which under Don Revy was hugely successful, but uh, won few friends outside of Leeds. And there were those who sought to entertain with the Occasional flirtation with a trophy. So, which one were you growing up at? The Leeds model, or were you a lover of the great entertainers of the time?
1: Do you know, I guess I was probably a bit of both. Um, as an Arsenal fan of that time, I, I guess I was naturally anti Leeds because um, they were the team that Arsenal were competing against most of the time. But I'm not sure even the, um, the most diehard Arsenal fan of that era could. Genuinely put their hand on their heart and say that Arsenal were playing um, what Pele always used to call the beautiful game. At that point, I mean, we had Charlie George who was who kind of stood out because he was so different to everything that was going on around him. So, yeah, you know, but but it was that ongoing debate of the time, and, and and when you research the the period like I did, and you you kind of go back through what people were saying and writing about football at that time, it never seemed to be far from the surface. There was constantly um, debates about method versus entertainment as it normally got described. Um, and it was just ever present. Um, the, I guess the, the Ramsey team of 66 has sort of set the wheels in motion. And by 1970, by the time Leeds were, were starting to win things, then it was just you know, a, a, an argument that was never very far from the surface. Um, so I guess, I, as I say, I was probably called in a little bit a little bit in the middle of it as an Arsenal fan.
0: Leeds feature, obviously, quite a lot in, the, in this book, especially in the, the early stages, as Don Revy is mentioned. Um, now, his methods uh, got a lot of criticism at the time. But when you actually delve into the way that he used to manage the team and the club overall... Uh, it was a very holistic approach. He had his uh, finger on the pulse of everything that went on, didn't he? Right through to things like remembering the cleaners and the staff's birthdays and sending them cards, answering all fan mail. I mean, quite incredible. And he would never criticise the players in public.
1: No, I mean, that's that's the, the big thing about Don Revy is, is whatever outsiders think of his methods, the, the love that he inspired within the club was just unrelenting um you know you will never hear with the possible exception of of gary sprake maybe who in later years was critical of, of revy in, in various ways you will never see or hear or read anything against him uh, from any of his leads players uh, they they yeah, absolutely loved him um, even down to the sort of quirky and often Quaint and outdated stuff like having them all locked away in a hotel on a Friday night before a home game and playing carpet bowls and bingo, um, stuff that you know is easy to ridicule from the outside. When it's at a club that has never known success and suddenly you are being bracketed with the best in Europe, I suppose it's easy for for people to buy into it and and you know acknowledge. the the benefits of everything he's doing and when it comes with that sort of pastoral care that he was able to wrap around everyone at the club as you say you know knowing the names of the cleaners putting bets on for them you know using his own money to win a bit of pin money for the cleaners and and stuff like that it it, you know it goes a long way Um, and it's and it's telling that as I say you never see anyone from within the Leeds family criticize him Um, and it's very unusual for any manager, at any club to have such sort of universal approval from even with his own players, even from a successful team. I'm sure when we read in 10, 15 years' time, I'm sure if we read autobiographies of Manchester City players at the moment, there will be people that will be critical of, of the way Pep Guardiola has gone about things. But you just never get that with Revy at all. His players absolutely love him.
0: Now, there was this perceived north-south divide. In the south, you had the, the so-called fancy dance, didn't you? In the north, it was where the real men playing real football were. Ian Hutchinson, describing the relationship between Chelsea and Leeds, he said uh, there were no other words for it. We hated them. And there was another great quote from Alan Birchner who was talking about the kits. He said, I came from Sheffield where we had this horrible nylon kit. I arrived at Chelsea, I put their kit on and I immediately felt like I was an Italian.
1: And that's why it's, I guess, so apt at that first FA Cup final of the decade was was Chelsea leads the southern softies if you like against the, the hard northerners and sort of again that method versus entertainment it just sort of set up the narrative of the decade perfectly um, and there's even um, when you talk about Chelsea there's even a, a quote that I've included in there from whatever happened to the likely lads um, where yes. um, Terry says oh I've always hated Chelsea they, they look more like the younger generation when they run out and, and for the benefit of those not old enough to remember the younger generation were a, a dance group of the time, um, with uh, lots of sort of pretty boys with sort of flowing locks, um, and it just kind of shows that that there was that that real um, that real divide. And, and for as much as people sort of railed against what Leeds were doing, um, as a souther- as a southerner myself, it's probably difficult for me to imagine how the likes of Chelsea and as you say, with their fancy dance, were, were sort of perceived um, up in the, in, the, in the places where football was you know, a man's game and you got stuck in and didn't take any prisoners. So, um, yeah, again, fascinating that, that the first cup final of the decade should, should throw up a match-up that so perfectly encapsulated that whole debate around football of that period
0: now the football debate continues with the emergence of the mavericks best hudson george marsh worthington curry marinello incredible individual talents great watch but best apart of course who won a european cup and charlie george who won a league title no real legacy of consistent achievement and internationally even less because they've racked up under 50 caps between them. Do we miss Mavericks today or are we creating an aura around them that didn't really exist because for the large part, management of the time simply didn't know how to actually handle them?
1: Uh, interesting. I think the aura did exist. I think, and I, th- and I thought carefully about this in writing about them. Um, I don't think it's just sort of rose-tinted. Spectacles when you look back at those players, I think even at the time they stood out from everything that was going on around them. They were the ones who were being pulled out of magazines and stuck on bedroom walls. Um, they were, you know, they were flamboyant. They were good looking. They were getting in the tabloids for their exploits on and off the field. Um, their football at a time when when you look at the pitches that people were playing on, you looked at the nature of defenders. It was so difficult to stand out. And then, as we said...
0: Do you think it was uh, at times politically and socially as well? Did th- did that have anything to do with it?
1: Um, I'm not so sure. I, th- I think that is maybe one of those things that you kind of add importance to when you look back at it in, fu- in future years. But I think at the time, it, it really was just the simple fact that these guys were playing a different kind of football to what most people were playing. And sadly, what most managers wanted, um, whether that was their club managers or the England managers, you know, Alf Ramsey famously didn't have much time for the likes of Marsh and Worthington and, and the others. And even at their club teams, the patience seemed to run out fairly quickly. I mean, Osgood and Hudson both talking there various autobiographies of um, the fact that Dave Sexton, who had a reputation as being a manager who liked to play entertaining football, certainly at that period of his managerial career, um, would would fall out with them on a regular basis over their behaviour. And it seemed to be that it was impossible for that level of talent not to be encumbered by a level of you could even call it a personality disorder if you want or or something like that there was something that went with it there was something within those people that made them the players they were on the field that also made them difficult characters off the field and it took you you talked about sorry uh, it took a rare manager to have patience for that I mean Stan Bowles talks lovingly of, of his time at QPR where he finally had a club chairman who who he could go to and borrow £200 to go and put uh, on the horses because that the, the, they almost realised that this is how you got the best out of a Stan Bowles. You let him be the person that he was. If you let him be that personality, then you were going to get the best out of him on the field. And there were lots of managers who just wouldn't take that view. Charlie George, in the end, fell out fairly quickly with Bertie Mee at Arsenal because Bertie Mee was very old school, former military, had little time for someone who would run around and and get up to things on the fields, flicking the Vs at the opposition crowd, getting into trouble with referees, arguing about wages, just wasn't the kind of personality that Bertie could relate to, very alien to the world Bertie had come from. So. I think it was just one of those things that you you have to accept that if Frank Worthington wouldn't be the player he was if he wasn't also the kind of personality that had him off running around chasing women and, and doing stuff like that.
2: one say what?
0: coaches mentioned in the in, in the book and uh, from previous issues, Dave Sexton you mentioned um, he went against the uh, the Don Revy code of I'll never criticise players in public with uh, a great line against uh, Peter Osgood he's for sale, I'm not happy he's doing less and less and Osgood's uh, comeback to that was I might look lazy but it's how I play, it's my style he fell out with bowls telling him to track back I'm here to score goals and make goals that's not my job Tony Curry was another uh, who fell out with Jimmy Armfield because he couldn't stop blowing kisses at the fans but the piece de resistance has to be Rodney Marsh you mentioned uh, Alf Ramsey I've heard this quote attributed to many players in, (laughs) in the past you know what I mean don't you if you don't work hard, I'm going to pull you off at half time. to which he replied, blimey out All we ever got at city was a cavity and an orange.
1: It's, it's a great quote. It's one of those ones that it actually doesn't matter whether it's true or not, or who said it. It's, it's a bit like that old one of, you know, sorry, boss, he's got a concussion. He doesn't remember who he is. You know, tell him he's Pelé and send him out there again. It doesn't matter who said it or when it's just such a great line. And it appears to have been attributed to Rodney Marsh more than anyone else. Um, And if it's true, and if he said it, it's not hard to understand why he didn't play for England again, because we all know that Alf Ramsey would not have stood for that kind of um, confrontation or that kind of sarcastic comment, um, because Ramsey was one of the people who, as he proved successfully in 1966, didn't have a love for the individual player. He wanted people that could work within the team ethic. It's why injury apart, it's why Jimmy Greaves probably never played in the final, he went for Jeff Hurst, um, and it's why, as you say, that this group of players achieved fewer than 50 caps between them. But as you also mentioned, the undeniable fact, and whether it's because they didn't contribute enough to the teams, or whether it's because they were not the kind of players that the big successful clubs wanted in their teams... Collectively, they actually won very little between them in the game, um, and that could have uh,
0: been different. Couldn't have for for Frank Worthington, who was about to sign for Liverpool before the the deal collapsed due to to his blood pressure. Uh, the media seemed to sort of embrace, with a little uh, glint in the eye, the off field antics back then, which would be. The polar opposite of how they would be reported these days, because you talk about his trip to Mallorca, where it was it was made quite plain that he <laughs> he managed to pull a plane passenger out a threesome with a, a couple of Swedish girls before a uh, magnificently built Belgian girl. All before the end of his trip, somebody said it's no wonder his blood pressure was a problem.
1: Yes, those those things were as much as the managers might have hated them. I guess the media just loved them. They were all sort of reported with uh, almost an admiration. It's it's very telling of the times that we were living in then, that it was, you know, what a lad he is. Look at what he got up to. Um, Whereas today it would be reported very differently. Obviously, it would be, you know, what is this guy thinking of? You know, he's jeopardizing his career. He's, you know, uh, abusing women or whatever. However, whatever the angle they, take might be it certainly wouldn't be this sort of patting him indulgently on the head and saying uh oh, what a what a boy and you know and run along and, and get on with it uh, very very different
0: what the kids had then growing up in the 70s in terms of uh, media and ability to consume the sport it seems incredible now when magazines struggle to sell a physical copy uh, we've seen many go digital or fold completely. We had Shoot and Goal at their peak, selling nearly a quarter of a million copies a week each. It's incredible, isn't
1: it? It is. And, I, and it was such an event when it dropped through the letterbox or you went down to the newsagent to pick it up. Um, it's very difficult for people are not of of my generation to understand how starved we were i mean this goes beyond football it's whatever you were interested in well, because music as yeah well. it's music as well or, or films or whatever whatever you were interested in it was so difficult to consume it in the volume that you consume whatever your passion is these days so you did almost wait at the doorstep for for shoot to drop through so you could yeah, you know, I always used to start by flicking through, seeing who all the posters were, and then sort of gradually read it over the next 24 hours. Um, you it, would take care, though, wouldn't you, not to read too much on the first day? I'm not sure that I managed to achieve that much. I mean, I, I, I think shoot came on a Saturday morning. I, was, I think I was normally done with it by the time On the Ball started at lunchtime. Um but yeah, and everything was was seized upon, whether it was the sticker collections we had in the, in the playground or the magazines or the, the rare instances. And don't
0: forget those stickers,
1: uh, by the way,
0: weren't the penny no. stickers, oh, were no. they? These needed yeah, glue. These,
1: these took a, um, a, an effort and a commitment. You had to run home with, with your, whatever you'd managed to swap in the playground. And you had to be the right kind of glue. I remember my mum getting me this really horrible, sticky, I can't remember what brand name it was, but it was almost like um, varnish. And it was, and, and you kind of stuck it in and it all spread out and glued the pages together. So you had to be very precise in what glue you bought. And this, this was in the days before you could get, you know, a, a Pritt stick or something with a very sort of neat application method. It was put in a... A brush into a bottle and putting it onto the little top of the the, the dotted line, the uh, top of the the back of the sticker and putting it in place. Um, and then you had the challenge of when you lifted it up to read the biography, you, you couldn't lift it up too hard because, because you didn't want to crease the sticker. <laughs> so it was it was quite a quite a skill to not only collect the stickers but then to present them in a way that. Um, you know, that would, would stand the test of time. My big regret, because I bought them all again over for vast sums of money over eBay over the last 10 years, is that I got rid of all of mine. Um, I'm, sure I'm, you yeah. know, I'm sure a lot of us yeah. will tell the same story. Uh, I wish we'd still had the originals.
0: The, the best football magazine that I came across in your book, which I never saw, but just sounded fantastic and well ahead of its time, was Foul magazine. Uh, The antidote to everything about football, football's private eye, which included um, sections called a foul of the month, and the best one has to be spot the brawl, put an X where the next fist is going to land.
1: Again, that's, um, I guess, a result of what we started off talking about. There's this whole debate at the time about whether football was going in the right direction, whether the, the... Will that the need to win, that 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 desire for victory at all costs was actually eroding the essence of the game? And in foul, you had a group of writers who I think at the time were university students who felt that someone needed to say what a lot of people could were were, were seeing and thinking. Certainly of a slightly older generation. I mean, you know, my generation we were just happy with the with the shoot posters and. You know, if Tony Curry got kicked around a few times, it didn't really matter. But you know, these this group of people were were more concerned, if you like, about the way the sport was going, um, and they wanted to highlight those things and did do it in a in a humorous way. As as you say, it was very much a private eye kind of operation. It had those same sort of sensibilities and and presented the sport in that with that same sort of irony, if you like. Um, If if anyone ever gets a chance to see a copy, I would definitely would would try and urge them to do so. I've got um, a collection that was published, must be 20, 30 years ago, sort of the best of, um, but getting hold of original copies are are very difficult. And then the guys who did it all went on to, mostly went on to have very good careers. You know, like like Steve Tung, who went on to be a very successful uh, football journalist. So it was a good breeding ground as well. But they, they certainly didn't take any prisoners um, and they thought it was highly ironic. I remember that the first PFA footballer of the year, when that was, award was introduced in 1974, went to Norman Hunter, who was perhaps the sort of personification, if you like, of that whole sort of hard edged brand of football that had, had come into being over the previous few years.
0: When you uh, talk about uh, other ways of consuming football at the time, apart from match of the day, you could also buy for two pounds, which seems a lot of money actually. Uh, then a an LP of the FA Cup final commentary, or and I didn't know you could do this either. Eight and sixty millimetre film at four pounds of uh, big games. Uh, but what I did have was a uh, a slide projector, and you could buy slides. So if, if you were sort of, you know, if you saved up your Christmas money, your paper round money, these were these were a great way to consume.
1: Yeah, and they were widely bought. I mean, I remember buying, um, again, being an Arsenal fan, I remember buying the, the LP of the commentary of the Arsenal-Liverpool 1971 FA Cup final. And that was even in the days, I guess, probably just still within in the days before... Um, cassette players were 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 widespread and you could just sort of record it off the radio yourself if you really wanted to um but to get it in this nice sort of presentation sleeve and everything um, and get sort of 50 minutes of edited highlights that was the youtube of the day i guess if you wanted to relive it you sort of stuck the lp on and you listened to Maurice Edelston and, and Peter Jones giving BBC Radio Two as it was then um, their commentary, and you were suddenly transported back to Wembley. But I think the other thing about that is that that radio commentary itself was was um, resonated more at that t- those that time. I mean, I I'm sure all people of my age have great memories of listening to big games on the radio, simply because they weren't live on TV. Um, You would, and a lot of the big games weren't even live on radio. So when you did get a big game on the radio, it was, even that was an occasion. Um,
0: It was one of those things you did as a kid. If you were lucky enough to have a, a transistor radio of your own, but you never used to have a Radio Times, I mean, we never had a Radio Times, but what you do is, when you when you went off to to bed at night you'd sit there with the little dial and you'd be pushing the dial around trying to find things and it was the sense of excitement and uh, unbridled joy if you managed just to click on the, the moment that there was a live game going on somewhere usually a European game midweek but it's like you said Morris Edelson or Peter Jones.
1: Yes I mean I've, I've- Again, uh, as an Arsenal fan, I, the 1971 FA Cup run, they, they had replay after replay. So my memory of, of following that FA Cup run is, is sitting in my bedroom or lying in bed, listening to those games on the radio. Um, and wonderfully vivid memories of them. The, the commentators, those guys are fantastic. You know, and, and, and at that age as well, your imagination is, is so active. Um, You know, I can picture myself almost sitting in the stands at Filbert Street, listening to Arsenal play a replay against Leicester in the FA Cup. Um, Fantastic memories um, and totally alien concepts to anyone who has grown up in the Premier League era.
0: Players earning off field was, uh, was almost unheard of. Nobody used to do much at all. Then up pops uh, this group called the Clan Hudson, uh, Ernst, and Venables, and uh, Franny Lee, Chiffers Beale, uh, Man- Terry Mancini. And they used to model clothes. They had a photographer that used to follow them around, they used to photograph them in bars. How ahead of its time was that?
1: I guess it it was ahead of its time. It, it didn't, uh, and maybe the, the fact that it was so ahead of its time meant that it actually didn't last very long. I mean, if you try and find evidence of it, it seems to be, as you say, a few photo shoots, plug in some restaurants, doing some uh, some fashion modeling. Um, and it, it died out fairly quickly. Um, I remember speaking to Terry Mancini about it and he said, he said, I can't actually remember doing anything with that group other than us going out for lunch and kind of getting drunk and having a great time. Um, but it was interesting times for players uh, and, and the profession. It was the first time they'd really, I guess the 70s were the first time they'd really come out of that image of being the guy next door. I mean, when they weren't going to the to games on the same buses as, as a lot of the fans, yet they hadn't reached anywhere near the levels that they would reach now and hadn't reached anywhere near the levels that other people in the entertainment industry were at at that time um and i think i you know I make the point in the book that it was it was the 70s was kind of the professional footballer's journey into the middle classes and that was the extent of their ambition they didn't want they I'm not saying they didn't want to be multimillionaires. it was so beyond the realm of possibility, that it wasn't even something they imagined or aspired to. It, it seems to be that, that the height of ambition when it comes to material things at that time was to own your own house, preferably in a nice sort of semi-rural or suburban estate where you're rubbing shoulders with doctors and lawyers and you can join the round table uh, and your wives can mix with with, with other wives in in that social circle and that was the extent of it there was no unless you were a kevin keegan or a george best there was no real sense that a whole other world was open to you it was i want to be on the same par as the doctors i want that middle class lifestyle that sort of abigail's party type um, was that Mike England? It was, you, yeah. Uh, you quoted, in yeah. The, in it was, the there's book. A, there was um, a lovely piece that in, in Hunter Davis's seminal book, *The Glory Game*, which is still one of my favourite all-time mm-hmm. books, revolutionary for its time, and and again, I guess, sort of speaks to the the period that you know it came out in '73, with him having spent the '71-'72 season at very close quarters with the Spurs players, been allowed total access that would never be allowed these days. Um, and and he has a lovely story of of mike england hosting a party at his house where he's hired in a dj and he's you know people are dancing on the on the shag pile carpet and everything and and it is <laughs> he's he's he, he's a member of the round table he's invited all the sort of local businessmen round and the footballers all stick together and talk to each other and the footballers wives all stick together and they're a little bit nervous of of the company they're in, so they they are they're moving into the middle classes. But there's still this feeling that maybe we we don't quite belong here. Um, we're sort of imposters, uh, and, it, and it's a lovely uh, observation of, of of what life was like as a aspiring sort of middle class footballer of that time.
0: Uh, do you know whether or not this guy called Brian Hewitt is still around? Because he has a lot to answer for. It's a crime. For some people back in the 70s, but he was the one that had the brainwave, wasn't he, to take on Adidas and Puma and came up with the idea of white boots? Did you have a pair? Yes,
1: yeah, I did. <laughs> I, I did, sadly. I, I and I spoke to Brian um, when I was writing my uh, biography of Alan Ball a few years ago. Uh, I tracked Brian down and, and spoke to him. Um, I did have a pair of Alan Ball boots. I was. Even though I've uh, well, I was an Arsenal fan, but obviously, even when he was at Everton, I was a big fan of Alan Ball. I always had a soft spot for Everton because my school team wore the same kit, so I liked Alan Ball. And then when he joined Arsenal, that was it, um, and I went straight out and got a pair of white boots. Um, but yes, he had the um, the foresight, if I guess, if you like, to to think that if we're going to take on these big monolithic shoe manufacturers, we need to do something that is going to Mark us down as being a little different, and he saw hockey players wearing white boots. He said, "Why don't you try it for football?" Um, and then famous got Alan Ball to wear them, or not quite wear them, wear his own Adidas but boots painted white to look like the Hummel boots um, initially, because Alan Ball just simply didn't like the boots that um, that they did for him. Uh, he said, "I can't wear these," and, and obviously he had a contract to wear them, so. They spent a uh, frantic few hours before he was first due to unveil them in the 1970 charity shield, sending his boots off to a, uh, somewhere where they could be coated with white paint and have the, the Hummel chevrons painted on them. <laughs> and it's interesting, if you look at our pictures of Alan Ball in, the, in that period, a lot of the time you, you kind of see oh, he's got white boots. But then if you look carefully, you can see that almost the lower half of the boot is actually black, where the sort of the mud and the, the rain of the... the pitch has started washing away the white so uh, you can tell which games he's wearing the real thing and which games he's wearing his painted white you mentioned
0: Wembley and uh, in this era this was the era of the touts first becoming prominent figures in particular one Stan Flashman whose name uh, over and above anybody else people will probably remember. Terry McDermott's uh, quote at the time saying players look to him uh, as their payday. And there was the occasion back in in 79 where the players left, leaving the club banquet to go to Stan's party down the road.
1: Yeah, yeah. Getting to the cup final, as as much as it was the pinnacle of a player's career, or or certainly in terms of a one-day event, and again difficult for maybe for people of this generation to understand what a massive deal the cup final was, but for a player to appear at Wembley in a cup final was not only a massive achievement for his career, but it was a payday. Um, players would get anything up to, it seems like a 100 tickets in, in some cases, um, and the vast majority of them were used uh, to to supplement their income. It was officially not allowed it was something that was um done with the with the fa turning a blind eye there was there was another tout one of flashman's rivals who got called by the fa to answer questions at an inquiry and and they threatened to um threatened to sort of take action against him he said well yeah okay in that case do you want me to tell them about all the tickets for the Frank Sinatra concerts that i've got you lot so it was um it was just one of those things that was, was accepted. The managers did it. Tommy Doherty famously you know, talked about doing it. Um, it was one of the perks of, of getting to the cup final at a time when, as we mentioned, outside of your pay packet at the end of the week, there weren't an awful lot of opportunities for players to earn extra money.
0: Testimonials you used to see a lot uh, back then. And again, you mentioned this in, in the book. Usually at the end of the season or as a, a pre season, we would always see a testimonial for somebody or other. And it was for, you know, the 10 years uh, loyal service, apart from Frank McClintock, who had a bit of an experience, didn't he, when he was sold to QPR? Yeah,
1: he did, yeah, famously. Bertie Mee sold him to QPR, and he was six months short of, of his ten years. Um, and Frank McClintock, who'd who led Arsenal through their revival from you know a long period without winning anything to to win the double and and win in Europe, um, Frank McClintock almost seemed to to bleed Arsenal by by that time. And you would have thought him more than anyone would have been worthy of a testimonial, but because he fell six months short of, of the 10 year limit that was it um and bertie Mee said no we play by the rules you're not getting it and and that definitely soured frank's departure from arsenal um but the, the whole testimonial system was was strange and but again was something that a lot of players really needed they they relied on it it was their chance to set themselves up post football these players didn't earn enough during their career to know that they had a comfortable life ahead of them once they got out of the game. So if they weren't planning to stay in the game and they wanted to set up a business or pay off their mortgage, a lot of them needed that testimonial. And they were so at the mercy of weather, who the opposition were, the timing. I mean, two people who got it absolutely right. Coincidentally were Mick Shannon who'd arranged his testimonial at Southampton for what turned out to be two days after they just won the FA Cup. So, obviously, the place was full. Similarly, Tommy Smith at Liverpool, um, his testimonial was pre-planned and was two days after he scored an important goal in the European Cup final. So, people just wanted to come and pay homage to him. So, you had to be very lucky. There were others who who weren't so lucky. I, I think I quote Ian Gillard at, at QPR, who... who had a very low attendance and after he'd paid expenses you know made a few hundred pounds and and if you're hoping that that day is going to set you up for the next phase of your life then that's a it's a massive a massive issue for you if you're if you're not making that kind of money
0: for granted seven days a week these days again back in this in the 70s as you say i mean football was saturday with the occasional midweek game and, and, and cup replays we can't not mention the political times in the sort of early to mid 70s when we were having three-day weeks we were having strikes uh, we were having power cuts etc cetera, etc cetera. football was encouraged to be played then on a Sunday
1: yeah uh, yes and and as as prevalent as Sunday football is now it um you know it was it was considered sacrilege at that time. Um, I think in any book like this, it's important to set the scene for what what was happening around the, the rest of the country, um, and kind of put the sport that you're talking about into a, into a wider context. And that is obviously especially important when, as you say, it, it impacts immediately on what happens on the field. Um, I remember again listening to FA Cup replays on a on a Tuesday afternoon because. Um, You know, we were on a three day week because of the miners strike and power was being rationed. And then in 74, the notion was that you had to spread the power supply out evenly throughout the week. So Sunday, that would normally be a fairly low level day in terms of energy use because factories were shut, workplaces were shut. Um, Suddenly the thought was, well, actually, why don't we play football on Sundays and that will help take the burden of whatever energy supplies needed to keep those football grounds going and a lot of clubs jumped at the chance um the sort of slightly smaller clubs um they were able to they had to get round the um the admission thing like you couldn't charge admission for a game on a sunday um, but you could charge whatever it was one pound 50 at the time the equivalent of the entry fee you could charge that for a program so that's how they did it um, but the opposition to that even you know, Sir Ralph Ramsey came out and said, "Well, hang on, this is my this is my one day off of the week, um, and now you're making me go out and watch football on a Sunday." Kevin Keegan said, "If this is the way football is going, I don't think I'm going to be around in it for much longer." It was it was, uh, you know, son. That was bizarre. Yeah, son. Kevin Keegan. Yeah.
0: Kevin Keegan said at the time, "If the prospect facing me over the next ten years." was to be forced to play football on a Sunday, I would consider hanging up my boots.
1: Crazy, isn't it? Where, you know, any big game now, if, if, if you're not playing on a Sunday, you know you're not playing for the big teams. Um, very strange, different times. Um, and it took a long time. You know, the, the experiment went well. Um, the crowds were up. It was well received. But once the... Miners were back at work and the energy crisis was over. That was it. It, it. There was no immediate consideration of, well, that went well. We should keep trying it. It was, it was another 10 years or so before it actually was back on the table again. So as successful as, a, as it had been, it certainly at that point wasn't um, wasn't a game changer.
0: We've got to talk about European football because we take, again, this for granted now. We enjoy watching European football coverage. Uh, we enjoy watching European footballers, the big names. It used to be once every two and four years with the European Championships and the World Cup and the occasional European final. But Europe was simply not to be trusted for for most. You know, When you look at the, the coverage at the time, I mean, they had good points as well. I mean, Brian Clough's furious comments after the Derby Juventus game, uh, leeds had problems with a greek referee again in, a, in another tie against milan that guy was banned for life and the dock you know always one for a quotable quote you know was saying about how they come over and they taste the tackle and that's it they go back and
1: howl uh, well i mean maybe things haven't changed that much you know if, if you look at recent events here maybe the view here is that that europeans are still not to be trusted but um that's a whole other debate the 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 European yeah. football <laughs> was this sort of unknown frontier at that point, even though by the mid seventies, we clubs had been playing in Europe for 20 years. It was still, they'd come back with almost like war stories. Um, it was so different. There was no exposure to, to foreign football. You never saw games from the Spanish league or the, or the Bundesliga on TV. So people didn't really know what to expect until they got out there. Um, and then they would find a very different game, um, a very different interpretation of the rules and the kind of things that we took for granted in English football, like the hard crunching tackles. They were completely alien to footballers in Italy in the same way that the little things that they would do, the you know, pinching you the skin under your arm as you help a player up or pulling the hair. Um those kind of things that I guess were, were everyday practices in in, in in Italy or wherever else at that time again were foreign to us. So it was this real clash of cultures. Um and you know, again, maybe best encapsulated um if we keep coming back to Arsenal, in in the sort of nineteen seventy Fairs Cup game where they, they'd had a fairly rough game on the field and ended up having a Punch up in the street after the post-match banquet. I mean, again, <laughs> what an alien concept that is! Post-match banquet after a European game. I mean, these days teams play the game, jump on the on the on their flight home, and they're and they're back home sort of two hours after the game's ended. You know, in those days, it was it was still considered enough of a, a almost a diplomatic importance that you had a post-game banquet after a, a European tie of, steak co- of cookies, course steak and chips <laughs> as any anyone who read focus on in shoot would understand um favorite favorite food nine times out of ten was steak and chips um yeah so you
0: yeah, was gonna say you got a great quote there you mentioned the likely lads you had another one terry's uh views on europeans said, oh he said god didn't make this country an island by yeah. accident
1: yeah the, the, whatever happened to the likely lads is 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 a, is a recurring reference point for me throughout this book i must admit um partly because i think it's the greatest sitcom ever written and partly because the views of of, of terry particularly uh, and bob just were are a perfect guide to a historian when you look back and you want to kind of get a snapshot of what people thought of that time um it's you know for better or worse that yeah
0: What people need to remember about that time, as if they sort of recoil at some of the of the quotes, is th- this was only twenty five years since the end of the war. We're now fifty years in advance of nineteen seventy, starting. So that gives you uh, an, an idea of why what was happening was happening and what was being said was being said. Yeah,
1: and I think it probably plays into that um, into that culture clash between english and european football you know europe going into europe going abroad and and fighting battles if you like was still it still had those overtones of what people had been through 20 30 years earlier you know you 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 almost you were going off to play a game in in east germany and you were almost seen as carrying on that sort of spirit of of the the troops going overseas, it was very much wrapped up in that same kind of feeling. A lot of the reporting around the Games was using the same kind of language that that would have been used um, in wartime. Um, And you're right, people do forget how close the end of the war still was by the time we reached the 70s. Uh,
0: And the Anglo-Italian Cup, which was around at the time. There were some even more incredible tales there of uh, games that were abandoned due to uh, trouble and violence. West Bromwich, Jambi and Vicenza. Wolves, Lazio marked by trouble. Swindon Town beating Napoli in the... San Paolo in Napoli. 55,000 people in to watch the Anglo-Italian Cup final. It's quite incredible.
1: incredible. There's so many things about that game that make you stop saying, wait, what? Yeah, Swindon beating Napoli, for, for a starter, in front of 55,000 in, in, in a tournament that, I guess, history has come to regard as being pretty irrelevant and, and not important. And then the fact that the game didn't even reach its conclusion. The the, the home fans were so fed up with the fact they were losing that they, they kind of rioted and, and brought the game to an early conclusion. Um I, I, unfortunately, there's no there's no TV footage of it, but I love the description of the time of, of the Swindon manager with the trophy, thinking that if he went and displayed the trophy to the Italian fans, it would somehow sort of calm them down. <laughs> and in fact, you know, all it did was 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 bring this sort of hail of concrete upon him, at which point he had to run for the safety of the dressing room. Um, but yeah, some wild tales, considering it was a tournament that was sort of supposed to harness. Um, a spirit of camaraderie between the two nations. Um, it was just constantly full of battles and and you know, tales of violence on and off the field. Um, Astonishing in, in a way that it lasted for, for as long as it did for four or five years.
0: Well, people can, I can tell you, find Blackpool winning it uh, against Bologna. That is on YouTube because I actually went and looked at the two incredible goals they scored to win it. Uh, as described by Barry Davis, by the way.
1: Yeah, I remember watching it live on Grandstand. Again, what a treat that was. Suddenly, on a random Saturday, at the be- I think it was the beginning of June, we had live football on, on a, on a Saturday afternoon. I mean, what, what was better than that? Who cared that it was the Anglo-Italian Cup final? This was a Cup final live on TV. Um, you know, an English team against an Italian team. What a treat that was at a time when we had very little football. Um, I'd love to know what the audience figures were for it, but I'm sure they were pretty impressive.
0: Well, I'm not so sure about that. You had the ITV7 on World of Sport and wrestling, because <laughs> there was always a choice. I've got to mention, lastly, uh, television coverage and television media. The BBC had tried in the late 60s to get live football on, bizarrely, on a Thursday night, uh, but the clubs were adamant that this was never ever going to happen the clubs and uh and and tv were at loggerheads literally for years
1: there was this real again philosophical battle about whether tv was a quote good thing or not um even to the the end of the 70s you know I've, i've come across articles in magazines and newspapers where people are still debating in 1979 whether television coverage is good for the game or not. During a decade where crowds were on the decline consistently and people were looking for reasons behind that, it was very easy for people to conclude that the fact that you can see some highlights on a Saturday night or a Sunday afternoon means that people are staying away from the real thing. So you had that constant battle. then had a battle about whether tv projected the game in the right way and the fact that it made the game look exciting and and sexy if you like was also something that some people didn't think was good for the game they 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 felt that it, it set expectations too high and that when you did go to a live game that you were then disappointed i someone um it's quoted in the book and off the top of my head i can't remember who it was now was suggesting that if you had a dull one nil game then the way that the 20 minute highlights package was edited should reflect that you should make it a dull 20 minutes rather than packing all the good bits into a 20 minutes and actually making what was a dull game look quite exciting which is bizarre when you think about it you know the tv was promoting the sport and and hopefully Getting young people into the sport. Yet there were some people who seriously thought that you should make the game look dull on television because it would entice more people to go to the to the grounds, which is a very odd way. I'm not sure you'd, you'd last very long at Sky if you went in and suggested that in a in a board meeting at the moment.
0: Well. Can you also imagine on Sky, when you've actually got TV deals worked out, as BBC and ITV did, and it came to the coin toss, because that's how they did it, to select games. If you win the coin toss, uh, so BBC gets first choice uh, for Match of the Day, then the three ITV regions. But that wasn't it. You couldn't go to the same venue for your feature game more than three times in a season.
1: hmm yeah, that's right. And you had to, they had to do a certain number of games from outside the top divisions, uh, and there were still even well into the 70s, there were still some teams that would turn round and say you're not bringing the cameras in. Um, Bob Lord, the chairman of Burnley, was um, sort of famously anti-TV, and when Burnley reached the I think it was the quarterfinals. They ended up reaching the semifinals for their quarterfinal game in in 74. They were at home and and Bob Law refused to allow the TV cameras in to cover the game. Um, Not quite sure what his logic would have been. The the game was pretty much guaranteed to be a sellout anyway. Um, But there was this real feeling of suspicion that that TV somehow wasn't good for the game. Partly, I guess, because the amount of money TV was paying for the game at that time wasn't reflective of maybe what the game's value really was. Um, they were getting it on the cheap. Now, you have no argument about the TV is good for the game because it's the TV money that, that funds the whole structure of the game. But at the time, the, the each club was getting a minimal amount out of TV. So I suppose it maybe it was easy for them then to turn around and say, well, what's this really doing for me? Um, It was only really as ITV tried to take Saturday night coverage away in in what became known as snatch of the day. Uh, They did a deal (laughs) independently of of the the sort of joint uh, negotiating committee that was meant to be operating. They did a deal to get Saturday night coverage um, at the end of the 70s. It was only really from then on that TV that, that TV started paying close to what the co- real commercial value of the sport was.
0: You never used to see a player interview either. Completely non existent. We had Brian Moore, who would probably have led the way there because he used to do the entire thing Your commentary interviews. He'd get somebody in and panels as well. It wasn't until ITV got the panel together for the, for the World Cup in Mexico with uh, Paddy Creran, uh, Malcolm Allison, Derek Dugan with Brian Moore and Jimmy Hill, and they all sat around, and as you say again in the book, smoke, drink, had our, our arguments, and the audiences loved it.
1: and it was the first time that ITV had really rivalled BBC in terms of viewing figures on the football. Um, you know, BBC had always been seen as as the real sort of home of live sport, and ITV hadn't really got a look in, but this was the, incredible that, that they, they were actually were competing with the BBC in, in terms of audience figures. It was, again, for people who are, are so used to what they see on TV now, it's, it's difficult to imagine how revolutionary it was. Before then, analysis of the game had been very stilted. It was maybe you occasionally had one person in a studio before a game and you asked him what he thought and he gave very stilted answers and, and not really prompting much of a debate, and then you went off to the coverage. Now you had four guys who looked and behaved as though they were sitting around in a pub watching the game on TV, arguing often in Malcolm Allison's case in not very sort of politically correct terms about foreign teams. Um, And it just really seemed to take off and, and capture people's imagination um, John Bromley, who was the head of sport at ITV, was the guy who, who came up with the idea. He'd signed all these people, and the original thought was, well, we use Dugan on this game, or we use Allison on this game, and we use Pat Crerand. And then he thought, nah, to hell with that, let's just throw them all on screen together at, at one point. And that was the first time that happened, and it could have been a, a disaster, but I think because of the personalities involved, it, it just became TV gold. And it, it's it, again one of those things that. Fascinating to look back on if people get a chance to look out on YouTube. And it, it really did change the way that football was presented. You know, BBC followed suit fairly quickly.
0: It seemed, by the way, didn't it, that f- when football tried to generate its own income or more of it, it usually involved the creation of more competitions, more cups, more games. You yeah, know, we had the uh, had the Watney Cup the two highest scoring teams in each division that weren't either promoted or, or in a cup final. Over the course of a week, uh, the, the Texaco Cup, not a bad idea, the Texaco Cup, was it English, Scottish and League of Ireland teams together? 51,000 people seeing that in the in the final. You also had things running alongside when they got Ford involved with the Sporting League to promote fair play. So you'd get one point for a home goal two for an away goal, minus five for a yellow, minus 10 for a red. But as you point out in this, but it was won, won, I think it was the first year, by Oldham, who had four yellow cards in the entire season.
1: Yes, yeah, yeah. And and what they won at the end sort of funded the the building of of a new stand. Yeah, it was interesting. There was Alan Hardacre, who was head of the Football League, was very keen to get more sponsorship money coming into the game. But there doesn't seem to have been any real consideration of attaching sponsors to what already existed. As you say, it was, okay, if we want a sponsor to sponsor a competition, we'd better start something else up because there's no way we could have a sponsor attached to the League Cup or whatever. You know, So you do come up with Watney Cup and, and Texaco Cup. Um, and I think Alan Hardacre, by the sort of mid to late 70s, was actually disappointed at how slow the take-up of sponsorship in football had been when when the Watney Cup and the Texaco Cup came in in 1970. The assumption was that this is it. Football is going to be a wash with sponsorship money. Um, again, not always to everybody's uh, approval. You know, Bobby Charlton was saying, oh, the last thing I want to do is run out with a on on the field with a." with a, a beer brand on my on my shirt or whatever. There was this fear that advertising was, was gonna become prevalent um, in the way that it is now. But it, it happened very slowly. By the mid-70s, those competitions, because they didn't stand the test of time as competitions in their own right, had gone. And no sponsorship had come in to replace it. Watney didn't turn around and say, okay, well, if this tournament isn't working, I wanna put my money on something else. Give me the, the League Cup or whatever. Uh, it just went away completely. Um, so, again, even though you can say the 70s sort of set the scene, really, for what we, we know now, in the same way that it did with Sunday football, it wasn't just a complete head-down rush to where we've got to today. It was, let's try it. it. Did it work? We're not really sure. And then it disappeared again for a while, before it was kind of resurrected again at a later date. Um but yeah there was certainly was this this again this almost fear that sponsors were going to come in and dictate what the sport looked like which was was probably the reason why it did take so long to to really become part of the, of the game as we know
0: there does remain a huge affection for this Decade, the nineteen seventies. Uh, I mean, do you pine for this decade? Was it the greatest decade for you?
1: <laughs> I'm not sure. I'd sound a bit too sad if I said I pine for it. Um, <laughs> I, I love it. It was the decade I, I grew up in. Um, it was the the decade that shaped the way I view football. It was the decade where I, you know, I have all my fondest memories. You know, first love is always the deepest, and 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 my football of the seventies is always going to be where my affections lie. I guess were these your musical
0: uh, affections as well? Because there's a there's a wide variety. I was trying to work out whether or not you were uh, a prog rock fan, a glam rock fan, a punk rock fan.
1: No, I was a a, a <laughs> definitely a, a glam rock fan at the beginning of the decade, and then into a uh, sort of punk and new wave at, at the end of it. You know, prog rock um, never never caught my my attention, um, or nor did.
0: One story I will tell you on the end of that, when we were talking about some of the excesses in the book, I was reminded of a, of a tale of Emerson, Lake and Palmer when they were on tour and the uh, gargantuan size of their roadie crew. Uh, Keith Emerson, uh, Greg Lake used to have carpet roadies uh, that were responsible... Uh, for the carpet that was put down on the stage to cover their instruments. So when the grand piano came out, there was a carpet underneath it and there was a guy employed specifically to look after the carpet, to hoover it and make sure it was in the proper condition. Does that sum up the era?
1: I guess it does you would struggle to find many football teams that went to those extravagant lengths uh, in that time there wasn't that much that, there wasn't enough there was obviously more money around in prog rock than there was in football Although Rick Wakeman I guess one of the most famous prog rockers was uh, involved in in the NASL so put his some of his money in, into football the lovely thing about the yeah, 70, good point, The lovely thing I think about yeah. the 70s as a fan myself and you know people happen to be Um, have their interest piqued by by what's in in the book is that even though we didn't have the wall-to-wall TV coverage that we have now, it was the first decade whose entirety was at least recorded in some form on a weekly basis um, or the match of the day or the big match or whatever the regional variant of that was. So most of this stuff, most of these personalities, you can get a sense of and a flavour of by going on YouTube and, and looking them up, so I think that is that that's the nice thing for me about this decade that it really is the first one that is there, from a visual aspect to to be enjoyed. Did you have a uh, set of floodlights on your Sibutio yes. set? I, I didn't. Um, and, and 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 here's the and here's the sad confession I'm going to make that I now have um, two grandsons, and I have. I have over the last few months, I guess as a result of lockdown, been building the Sabutio Stadium that I never had as a boy so that they can they can come around and play with me on it when uh, when we finally get out of lockdown. Nice. So, you know, stands really? and everything else. I haven't bothered with floodlights yet. That probably be the a question I asked myself, but I, uh, I'm still busy gluing fans into stands and on terraces at the moment just to uh, kind of recreate the 70s in my living room.
0: we are great story wasn't it that was author david herself talking about his new book it is called all crazy now and it's out now and you can find links to it at the website where you can find all of the previous editions of the podcast it's at www.talkingsportsbooks.com there's a bookstore section there you'll find all of the books featured in the series there so far as well Uh, Thank you for joining me this month. Next time out, we will be fast-forwarding 20 years to look at football in the 1990s. Until then, from me, Tim Capel, bye-bye for now.